Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm David. And this is the Practical Guitarist Podcast. The podcast for people who eat, sleep, and breathe guitar. David here, reminding you of all the ways you can participate in the Practical Guitarist Podcast. Subscribe using your chosen podcast app. Take the time to put in a review with the service where you found our podcast, like iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or Google Play. Get involved. Find our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash practical guitarist. You can also find us on Twitter as at practguitarist. If you're interested in supporting the show, we have launched a Threadless store at practicalguitaristpodcast.threadless.com. If you'd like to donate money to the show, there's always Patreon. Our Patreon is available at patreon.com slash practicalguitarist. If you'd like to reach out to us directly, you can do so at questions at practicalguitarist.com. On with the show. Hi, Jim. Hi, David. How's your year of no gear going? <laughs> well, you just you just jumped right into it, right? Like I well, no, I no four player no nothing. Time. That's no right. Four- just <laughs> stick it right in there. Oh God. Um I'm doing good actually. Uh so I've been having my little panic attacks. Um I'm kind of over the the uh um the Fillmore. It it's not that I don't want it anymore. I'm just kind of over it. Um I I would be totally happy if somebody were to buy me one or if I was to end up with one. But uh I'm kind of like back on the ample one train. Um I had I've been having a lot of personal stuff going on. I can't talk about it on the podcast. I don't want to talk oh. about it on the podcast. And I actually thought I was going to have to end the year of no gear early because I figured my finances were about to go to hell. Um, but it it appears that that is not coming to the fruition I thought it was. And so okay. year of no gear continues. I'm entering my third month this week. Uh, three yep. months of sobriety, people. Um, yep. Is I, it starting to get easier? It is, it is, and yeah, it is. I mean, and I can start to see the light at the end of the tunnel, even though it's still nine months away. Like it's, so I'm in month three and I don't, so I know I'm going to get parts for my white Stratocaster to fix it up. Um, it needs to be fixed. Um, those parts are significantly expensive. I'm going to probably put pickups in it because the pickups in it are just absolute shit. And then the, uh, the neck on it needs to either be reworked, which I'm talking about doing. Or am I get a new neck for it? Um, even me, I'm kind of sitting here going, yeah, I know it's parts, and we talked about parts being covered. But at the same time, I'm scratching my head, I'm going, that's a really expensive you know, venture for a year of no gear. So I don't know. Yeah. I might do it. I might not. It just depends. I'm going to do it in pieces anyway. Like, I'll do the yeah. pickups first, and I'll do the neck later, or the neck first, and the pickups later. Um, I do, do you have pickups from Nick Bongers? Uh, actually, I don't know what I'm doing yet. I, I've been thinking about doing, uh, trying to snag some, some of the Fishman ones, um, yeah. on, because I see them on reverb. I saw a set the other day for like 230 bucks wow. for, for a, a strat set. And I was like, I was all, I was really close to pulling the trigger. Um, and I don't know why I didn't, I, they're probably not up there anymore. Cause that's a good price, but I'll keep my eyes peeled. I actually want to do hum single single. Um, but I don't even know if it's necessary because they're going to be hum canceling anyway. Um, for what I do, I could probably get away with single, single, single. So maybe what I'll do is I'll buy the set. And then what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to get one of those reverse pick guards so that I have the, the bridge pickup as reverse slant, like the, like on the Hendrix strats. And I'm going to install it in that. 
So I'll just take all the wearing off and move it over. Um, yeah, actually, the the thing that kills you on those is the back plate because you have to yeah. have the yeah that have the the battery back plate. Otherwise, you got to take the pick guard off to put a battery in it. Um, yep. and that battery back plate is like ninety nine bucks by itself. Yeah, it's torn so inside. If you were gonna do if you were gonna do these pickups like off the shelf, they're like four hundred bucks. Yep. And the only reason I'm even looking at it is because even Nick Bongers was like, if I'm gonna buy new pickups today, like I would be buying Fishman Fluence. Yeah. I like the idea of having the, the dual voicing too. Makes it a little bit more um uh versatile. So that'll probably be what I end up doing. And then for the neck, I'm gonna get um I'm pretty much set at this point, bird's eye maple throughout. I'm a big fan of the look of bird's eye, and I actually um love the feel of it too. Um I don't know if I'm gonna I'll probably get a satin finish on it, just this minimal satin finish. It's gonna be stainless steel frets. Uh going back and forth. I'm I'm definitely gonna get it from warm off to the compound uh, the compound radius. The question is, do I get stainless steel frets? The answer is probably yes. Um, I think I priced that neck out non scalloped for right around 400, like 375. If I was to scallop, I'm looking at 450, 475. Uh, I'm on the fence about it. If I do scallop, I may just do the 12 fret up because I see real benefits to that. And then the other part, of course, is that everything else is not scalloped, so you can play chords. Don't have to worry about all that craziness. Yeah. Um, one thing I do notice as I'm working through uh, Chris book, I believe it's Chris Brooks's book. Um, yep. Is that playing the low E stuff? Like, okay, so if you're playing a pattern, he he'll tell you to play this pattern on one string and then work it on all the strings, which you should do, um, and get it get it to where it feels right and comfortable on each string. Man, playing things on the A and E strings for me is fucking hard because I have short fingers. And I literally, when I'm getting into the E string above, like, the 14th fret, my thumb is completely out from under the neck. Yep. And it's... I'm I'm literally doing this shit over the top. It looks ridiculous. Yeah. That's not really good. I mean, if you're bending and stuff like that, uh, there's not a lot of control. Um, Yeah. Well, fortunately, there's no bending involved in, in what they're showing me in that stuff. But again... You're not going to be bending on the E and A. I mean, I kind of think it's almost moot to practice yeah. at you know the 17th yeah. fret on the low E string. Yeah, because um, how many people are actually? I mean, we're going to fucking uh, use. I that. can see like a quick, but I can't say anything like uh, we're going to hold a note for yeah, anything. or like climb up because that's what it, what he's having you do is like these these scalar climb things, and it's just look, I get it, like you should be fluent and and all that, but I just think it's this is one of those things where it's like. I'm never going to use it. Yeah. So David wants me to do this book next. So yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how, what your take on it is. I am getting so freaking much out of it. I mean, this is the first instructional manual for guitar I've read in probably 10 years. And just the, just like the examples and stuff are really well laid out. And the fact that if you do things in sequence and you do it as the book describes for you to like the practice regimen, you see gains like yep. significant gains almost every day. And it's, I mean, it's really empowering to, I think part of it's because now I'm a good enough player that I can sit down with a book and I can literally just play the examples. I don't have to like, I don't have to sit there like for 15 minutes and figure out what the example is. I could just look at it and say, right. okay, so he's starting here and he's doing this and this and all right, I got it. And then just right. go, or I can listen to the sound samples that come with the book and, I, I yeah. didn't have that stuff when I was growing up. Like a lot of the books no. I bought didn't have didn't have any friggin' sound with them. Ridiculous. So when I was a when I was a kid, um, 
there were uh, the Hal Leonard method. I think it was Hal Leonard method, even back then, uh, came with a record, and you would you would play the record. Yeah, and it was a it was a record album. I want to say it was a seventy eight. Um, and the reason they gave you a 78 was so you could slow it down to play it at 45 and 33. That's cool. Um, and uh, so obviously then came cassette. And there was this cassette player that I found way back then, and I recently saw one, where you could slow it down but not change the pitch. Yeah. It, was a, it was the first thing I'd ever seen that could do that. And this was probably, ooh, 80, 81 that I had this thing. Well, who is it? Um, Trey Grady had that that what the little Casio sampler keyboard, yep. and he used to he used to sample things and then move it down an octave. Yeah, you know he would sample it half speed it, which means it was down an octave. So he yep. would know like okay, so if I did this and I play play on the keyboard like then I could transpose the notes to get up. So he had this whole process, and he was doing it three seconds at a time, folks. Jeez, that's just that's just insane. I would kill He's myself. A, I would. Yeah, He's a killer, killer. Uh, yeah, he's a great yeah. player. Um, yeah. All that, all the extra work he's done over the years is, really shows. Um, oh, yeah. But anyway, so that's enough of my year of so the gear there, woes. Yeah. So um, there's an interesting thing that uh, it's a little tangent, but not really. Um, so I'm reading a book called Outliers right mm-hmm. now, and in the book they speak of this thing um, that a lot of people have heard of, the ten thousand hour rule. Yeah, we've talked about it on the show. Yeah, and in that, um, they describe the fact that they were talking about the Beatles and all the time they spent playing the strip clubs in Germany. Yep. Getting them towards that 10,000 hours. Yeah, it's because John liked to hang out with strippers. Yep. <laughs> yep, that was pretty much it. But anyway, um, so moving on, we were coming back towards Shred. Yeah, because we talked about it last week um, in our episode, Shred Sucks. Uh, if you didn't yep. realize it, that was obviously clickbait. clickbait. Um, yep. Neither J- Jim nor I like seeks out shred music, but there is, I mean, nope. you can't deny that these guys are talented and it's so you can not like the music all you want, but you can't right. say it sucks because at least they're doing something that's right. credible and brings stuff to the table. Um, Absolutely. I'm, I, I would probably be a bigger shred fan than, than Jim at this point. I think um, so. But, that's because I, I don't even get into it. Uh, so, um, I think we that Jim we had asked members of the group to comment on who their worst and favorite shredders are. Yeah. I have not looked at that thread, um, not consciously. Anyway, if it showed up my newsfeed and I liked on it or something, that's one thing. But I don't remember who said what. So why don't you throw some of the names out there, and I'll tell you whether oh. I like or don't like them. Well, we've got some Ingve Malmsteen. Yeah, of course. Everybody likes Obviously. him. He's the, a- he's the most wonderful dude on the planet. If you don't like yeah. it, you can go to hell and die and burn in the lake of fire. <laughs> you go to hell they and were, you die. You were, you were hell and you die. You die. <laughs> um, yep. So uh, um, there was a lot of there was a lot of discussion. It, it, that's probably if Is I that where this, I actually had the eight- conversation with Ingve this morning. You did. Okay, yep. that's where that was at. All right. Yep, Rodney Stewart. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You were talking. Rodney uh, Stewart. Uh, he's absolutely right in that thread with almost everything he says, except that that performance from Ingve. He said yep. it was bad. I watched it the other night, and I just sat there, my jaw dropped. I was like, "What the fuck?" 
Like, how is he this good now? Because, uh, you know, I, I watched live in Leningrad not too long ago, actually. And I was, I was remarking that he was way more eighties metal than I had, ma- than I had imagined him in that period. Um, it's, it's interesting. I think it was, uh, who was it that said it was Jason Fuzzmonger that said that, uh, Ingve is actually better now. Oh, I agree. No, I agree. He was, but um, I, agree. I have to agree with that. I agree completely because I think he's now zeroed in so much on what he does, and and the, uh, Chris Brooks in his book talks about the fact that Ingve really only has like five or six techniques, and yeah. he's just gotten so good at those five or six things that he's found every possible way to apply it, and it shows in his music like it's not necessarily the most diverse thing in the world, but I think it's got more diversity than people realize. I mean, yes, he did. So classical music is broken down into various groups. There's Baroque and, and there's a romantic period and stuff. And he gets a little bit of each of those periods in different pieces. He tends to be a little bit more Baroque with his, with his yep. classical compositions. But then again, they've got this, there's this whole blues side of him that comes out right. every once in a while. And on top of that, he's got, some songs that are straight, like straight ahead rock pieces that sound right out of the Deep Purple catalog. Yeah. Um, he's now singing for himself. He won't hire singers. He's been fucked by him too many times. That's yep. that's kind of his attitude about it. Um, and his I I'm I don't remember what I think it was Spellbound. One of his last records, he did all the vocal work on it, and it's great. And he sings those songs live, and yeah. and is doing the shredding shit I over think the for top. Ingve. Shredding and singing at the same time is because, honestly, I don't think his brain is even thinking about the shred anymore. I think he's just playing it. Yeah, his, his mind is really on. Well, he's singing. Vocal. Ca- he's singing counterpoint. Yeah, to what counter melody? I mean, that's what I'm saying. Like that's. Yeah, that's and anybody. That's something we ought to do. We ought to talk about on a future thing is playing and singing, because a lot of people take that for granted. Let me uh, tell yeah, you, it's not easy. That is not easy. I've, I've been doing it for a long time. And there's still songs that I go, oh. Um, so Rodney Stewart did great. Um, he actually put up a, a little instructional thing, a little three-minute video yep. that uh, he put up there. If Super you guys helpful. want to check it out, it's in the group um, under a discussion deep inside of a thread. It <laughs> was start, started by Jason Fuzzmonger. It says, uh, as I play catch-up from not working. You, your guys um, talk about technique. Uh, according to Dave Wiener, Ingve has a guitar in his hands as often as humanly possible. Oh, I remember reading about that. That was very similar to uh, what um, Hendrix was doing in his army days. Um, it honestly explains a lot about how at 55, he's as good, if not better than he was in the eighties and how he managed to return to that ability of just car accident. Yeah. For, so yeah. for anybody who doesn't know, he, he I uh, forgot about that accident. Yeah. He wrecked it. He wrecked his Mercedes. He wrapped it around a tree. He had nerve damage and I don't think he's ever publicly commented about how bad it was, but the reports yeah. were that he lost the use of his right hand. And yeah. if you know anything about Ingve, the right hand is, is the most critical piece. So he was back within a year yeah. with probably his best album. Yeah. And had basically completely relearned to play the guitar. And he, and he said, he has said that in interviews. I had to relearn the guitar like yeah. from scratch because yeah, he because said nothing it, worked. Right. Nothing's going to work the same as it ever did. Well, I think he and, had pins in his, I think he had pins in his hand too, which yeah, makes it that relearn. much worse. 
Yeah. Um, it's just, but yeah, you talk about a guy who definitely puts in the 10,000 hour rule. Yeah. He's probably hit 10,000 and 50,000 at this point, (laughs) maybe a hundred thousand. He might've hit 50,000 gigging. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think 10,000 hours is three hours a day for 10 years. Yeah. I could see him playing three hours a day for, you know, not 10, but. But well, he's yeah, the kind of guy who, over his career. Yeah, yeah sure. I could see I could see a guy like that playing 15, 20, you know, well, not 15, 20 hours, but eight. Um, who was it? Uh, Steve, Steve Vai had a. The eight hour guitar the, workout. The eight hour guitar workout. Yeah. yeah, I think it's what it was where he talked about playing guitar for eight hours a day. Um, did you ever did you ever see the interview with him? I think it was in the same. It was a guitar world. I have it. I'll have to pull it out and uh, I'll mail it to you. You'll have to mail it back. Though. No, you I don't, really have, don't, to, you don't have to send me um, just oh, it, about it. I probably it's, read it's it. It's really cool. Um, he talks about in that eight hour. It, yeah, I read the whole that eight issue. Hour thing. Yeah, read that issue. Um, what is cool is when he did this, when he had the um, uh, the, the eight hour um, workout, mm-hmm. he talks about one of the things he used to do. He'd open the phone book mm-hmm. and play the phone book. Now, those of you who don't know how to play the phone book, what that means is. He would sit down and he would play the intervals. Like yeah. if your if your number was five 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 two two three two, he would play a fifth, a fifth, a fifth, a second, a second, a third, a, th- a second. I mean that was that was what he did. That's amazing that he would you know. Yeah, um, I mean, there's other ways you could play a phone book too, but that's just to think about. Yeah, sitting there and like decoding it that way, he'd get pretty good at it eventually. Um, which explains where some of his melodic lines come from. Like they sound like they come from Mars. They're probably coming from, you know, Suzanne, yeah, Suzanne random... you know, Edwards yeah. in Omaha. <laughs> At one five 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 BR five four nine. <laughs> <laughs> what we mean that's uh that's probably uh was it little green men. <laughs> yeah. If you think about it, yeah, he was like probably in New York City, had a phone book, ten thousand pages. Mm-hmm. What have you ever completed but- one? Yeah, you got to wonder. So that highlights an important point. So you hear these stories about guys like Steve Vai, like the eight-hour practice sessions, the um, playing the phone book. Um, yep. I've heard Steve Morse can play classical guitar while driving a vehicle uh, with his knees. Um, I, I can believe that. And and used to do it while they were on tour. He'd drive the, the van for a while. and He's, a, he's an airplane pilot or airline pilot. Yeah, so, yeah. It's, well, yeah, but I mean, so – you hear these stories and it's like, that's the kind of people that you're dealing with people who literally they're so good that now they're sitting here coming up with creative ways to challenge themselves. Right. And I I wish I could be so lucky as to creatively challenge myself. I got enough problems playing other people's music. All right. There's no need to challenge myself with uh, playing the phone book or, um, playing the model number of my, my, uh, my phone or, you know, like some craziness like that. Um, it's insane. I just, I don't even know. I don't. Let let me ask you something. How long is, what would be the longest number of hours that you played without a break? When I was younger, I was probably playing between six and eight hours a day. Well, not without a break because I'd pee. Well, I mean, I, I used to take my guitar into the toilet and play it while I was taking it. I mean, yeah, I don't mean, yeah, I got to, ew. 
I, I don't. I don't own those guitars yeah. anymore. They've since moved <laughs> on. God. They've been sold. I somebody. The yeah, <laughs> I sold. I sold them, and somebody at Guitar Center has my shitty guitar. <laughs> In a literal sense. Yes. Yes. This this guitar smells like shit. Um. No, I, no I, that's that's a Fender smell. Um. So. <laughs> All uh, the universe. <laughs> I had to. I had to take a dig. Um. So. Uh, on a serious note, though, so if you if um, six eight six hours eight hours is that the longest you played at any given time, right? I'm sure there's probably been days where I've done like twelve to fourteen, but but regularly I was doing like eight to six when I first started, like for the first three years when I was in high school, and I had that much time available to me, um, especially during the summer. <laughs> it's yeah. like you couldn't pry that thing out of my hands. So um, I was a kid that didn't have that luxury because I lived on a farm. So I probably got four hours at the most with a guitar in my hand um, as a kid until probably a teenager when I could finally break away from the farm and I was in a band. Yeah, I was spoiled uh, rotten. I didn't really have anything to do. And my parents wanted me to get a job, but I wasn't doing it. <laughs> <laughs> I had to learn to play guitar. I, well, yeah, I mean, so I played. Um, now, as an adult, I have played. In my 50s, I've played anywhere between six and eight hours in a day. I've spent an entire Sunday or entire Saturday. Probably just playing pretty guitar. recently, right? Yeah. Well, so, yeah. So those of you who have been following, I'm in a new band, right? So I'm sitting here learning these songs. I'm learning 14 songs a day. Yep. Do you ever wonder how you learn 14 songs a day. And I mean where I can I can play them without any cheat sheets and any notes. Yeah, like I'll I'll pick up four or five. But the thing is, I won't remember all of them. Like I'll come back and I'll play two of them the next day and remember those, and then the rest I'll have to redo. Like I'll have to yep. start from scratch. Because I just won't remember all the parts. Like I'll get like three cool. quarters of the song or whatever. So over a couple of days, then I'll learn them all. So I mean yep. it's I, I just don't have the knowledge retention or the the yeah, I guess knowledge retention to do that. Um, yeah, what I what I do is I sit down and I make a playlist, but it's an end to end playlist, right? Yeah, that's what I've done. So, so what I don't do is I don't just play one song; I play them all, mm-hmm. and then I play them all, and yeah. then I play them all, and then I play them all. So it's just repetition, and it's honestly my brain sees them as one big long song. And so I go, uh, you know, it's very important when I talk to the band, I said, look, I need to know what the order is going to be, or at least while we rehearse them, so I can get them down in that order. After a while, you know, after a bit, my yeah, brain is Yeah, then you can just kind of like out. reorient things, right? Right. But I'll tell you, it's important to uh, to do that. So what I do is I look for I look for sequences that I can remember. Okay, that's one, four, five, it's in C, done. Okay, that's... Yeah. Um, this part, like, um, so I was playing Maneater by, I just learned Maneater by, uh, it was the first time I ever sat down to play it. Yeah. I thought, oh, that's an easy Who's song. Who's the original player on that? He's, he's a killer. Um, oh, the guy that, uh, I forget what his uh, name is. He's been all over the place. He was lately. the band leader for, yeah, he was the band leader for Saturday Night Live for years. Um, yeah, that's, he's, he's that's a monster. Guy. Um, oh gosh, he's a, he's a Telecaster whiz. Yep. I'm trying to remember his name. I can see his face, older guy. I'm looking it um, up. Yep. So they 
I'll, I'll tell you a story. So um, a friend of mine um, was telling me their first guitar player was a close friend of his. Um, when they were still struggling, was with him forever. And then he was like, oh, we're not going to make it. We're not going to make it big. He left. This guy that we're talking about now came in, and that's when they got Sarah Smile. <laughs> it was like. According to Wikipedia, John yeah. Oates actually played the lead guitar on that. Oh, he played lead guitar. Yeah. yeah. But the other guy, I'm talking about G. the other e. guy. G.E. Smith is the rhythm player. That's it. G.E. Smith. G.E. Smith is the guy that played I most G. E. of the leads. The, yeah. He played most of their, most of their guitar stuff for, I mean, even, oh, yeah. even today, time. I think he's involved in uh, Daryl's house or whatever. Yes. So. But, uh, well, no, they got a new guy now. Oh, they do? GE is off doing a um like a it's kind of like uh the Steve Vai the G3 thing only um it's uh where it's, it's like pop it's, players right or something right Yeah and they play Stratocaster Telecasters and they trade off cuz like they're doing Jim uh, was it Jim Burton to, No is it Burton what the heck is the um, big uh tele player But anyway you're Jim Weider right Weider right he was in the Yeah, band. but there was a Yeah, but uh Burton, who's the uh the telecaster whiz, Burton. Why am I drawing? I'm drawing a blank too, because all I can think of is Danny Gatton and um Danny Gatton. This is a guy. There's another dude. It is it wasn't his last name Burton. Anyway, um they're off they're off doing something. They together. got Buchanan, Roy Buchanan. Oh Roy Buchanan, yeah, but I I don't know if he's still around. No, Roy Buchanan is Eddie gone Hansel a long time ago. Yeah, Eddie Hansel, Heinzelman is with them. Yeah, uh, right, right. They're all doing this stuff. So all these great telly players. Anyway, my point was, um, so I thought, oh, this will be an easy song. No, there's like 15 chords in that friggin' song. And uh, a lot yeah. of vamping, a lot of, a lot, a lot. Which is why oh, G.E. Smith is playing the, <laughs> the rhythm part yeah. of that song. I think that's probably why G.E. Smith is playing the rhythm. Because that's actually the harder part of the song, and it's played in a um, uh, a very ska slash. Um, uh, Edgar Winter worked on worked on that song too. I don't know if you knew that. Really? Yeah. This Keyboard. Is, I love Wikipedia, man. Um, so I'm looking for where they talk about his contribution to the song. Um, it says uh, John had written a prototype of Man Eater, and he was banging around with Edgar Winter, and it was like a reggae song. And yep, that's what I was gonna say. It's a reggae feel the way the guitar that's, is. That's where Hall came in and he said, "No, we should try it this way." So, yeah, Edgar Winter's not on the the finished track, but I mean, he was like involved in the production of it. So, yeah, that's definitely a reggae feel for the the rhythm guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, There's some interesting great guitar work in Hall Notes. Like, I actually am not a big oh, yeah. Hall Notes fan, but as I've grown older like i can start to appreciate more of the guitar work that goes on there and that that band like had some great guitar lines in there and you know they were one of those groups nobody knew for the longest time I mean, they couldn't sell an album to save their lives they had sarah smile and they had a couple other hits but it wasn't until private eyes that anybody even looked yeah, in yeah. their direction or bought more than a few well, of the, their albums the other band that's like that is um you listen to the news though as far as yeah. the guitar playing being like real low key but great 
Oh, um, jeepers. Yeah. I know we're doing a couple of Huey Lewis songs too. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. I thought, oh yeah, this will be easy. One four five, kind of kind of rockabilly-ish. No, no, not. Not even close. And then I go, can we just can we just play this disco stuff so I can play, you know, six two stuff and st- you know, instead of um all that? I'm like, oh my. God, it's just incredible. And, and uh, you know, one of the things that um, uh, was brought up to me because I was sitting on the porch tonight after after rehearsal, and and the guys go, you know, you're the one guy we brought in that could actually play this stuff. And it's not because I'm a great player; that's for sure. It is because um, I think because most of the guitar players you get when you get a guitar player that comes into a band, what do they want to do? They want to want to play. Want to play guitar? Yeah, right. And they want to play solos and all that stuff. Yeah, they want to play. Uh, they want to do the the Stevie Ray Vaughan, the Jimi Hendrix, and the Eric Clapton. Well, yeah, and not everybody has appreciation for pop music, and that oh. is the one thing I can say about you, Jim. Is you take this stuff really seriously, and you understand this yep. music better than a lot of guys I've talked to about it. Um, yeah. So I mean, yeah, I, everybody has their pop songs they like to listen to, but Jim, you actually get them. Like yeah. you, you understand how they're posed and all that. And I, yeah. I have not yet met anyone else that can do that. So. Yeah. I really get under. Yeah. The, the Myself and a keyboard player like that. We really get under the hood because honestly, when it comes to any pop song, and I don't care if you're the original musician or if you're a five piece, like we are, you've got to be able to break the song down and then build it back up in a way that your the pieces you have can, um, can present it and still make it where people go, yeah, I know that song because we're doing stuff like you, you listen to Pablo Cruz. And if you haven't listened to Pablo Cruz and you're a guitar player, you're missing something, you know, love will find a way season in the sun. And you'll suddenly go, wow, that's some really, really awesome guitar work in this. Okay. Another one, maniac, Michael Sambello. There's a um, whole tapping solo that goes on during that song, you know. And this was, uh, you know, Flashdance movie, Flashdance mm-hmm. song comes from. And you know, and I thought, okay, this is going to be an easy song. Yeah, the solo is going to be tough. No, because there's a bunch of freaking chords in there. The thing about a lot of pop music that um, I don't think is appreciated because honestly, there are a lot of very simplistic pop songs. There really are. The three chord wonders, the, the easy stuff. But your your stuff that is not guitar based pop music, where it's just yeah. bass and guitar. If there's a keyboard in there, you're playing some jazz stuff. You're playing some fusion stuff. You're playing stuff that is literally orchestrated. Can I can I give my uh, my example from this weekend? Yeah. So I said so. I sat down and I figured I'm gonna because I I'm a big big Genesis fan, right? All the way from like the the poppy stuff at the end, all the way back to Peter Gabriel at the beginning, and uh, I decided I was going to learn Mama, which is a which oh is one yeah of the yeah love it. Students, right. So I start to because I can sing it and all that. I sit down and I'm and I'm singing along with it, and I'm looking at the chords from some tab site because I'm like, I know kind of basically what the chords are, but I know there's some crazy stuff going on in the bass, and I start looking at it and I'm like, how many different voicings are they using? Like what yeah. in the hell is going on in that song? Right. Um, so I'm picking out all the little crazy keyboard parts and stuff. And like, it's not a terribly complicated song, 
but, no, but the chords are just stupid. Like it's not stuff right. you would normally play. And it, oh. it's because Tony Banks wrote the material right. and they were not a guitar based band. They were a no. synth band. So. Right. And that, um, that, you know, people that appreciate Zeppelin and appreciate, um, deep purple, um, you know, and, uh, Malmsteen and stuff, they need, they, well, I should say need to, but you should look, I'll, t- I'll tell you a band that, that most people would go, no way. ABBA. If you, if you took uh, um, Fernando or if you took even Dancing Queen, there's a lot of stuff going on there. I mean, you've got a whole orchestra. I'm trying and not to say a, anything. I know. I know you're thinking, oh, my God, there's no way. I just, ABBA's the, like, you could have said any other pop group. I just said ABBA, and I'm like, fuck ABBA. <laughs> fuck ABBA. No. Let me tell you something. There is a reason that they walked up to those guys and offered them a half a million I know, we just dollars. talked about this. I heard, I actually listened to the episode where you talked about it the other day. Yeah. And I, no, I get it. Like, I understand that ABBA is a, is an important band for a lot of people and for a lot of reasons. But for me, the, the music is just squeaky clean. Like, I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself What's your, to. What is your guilty pleasure? What is your biggest guilty pleasure pop band? Dave Hill. Guilty think, pleasure. I have to think about it. Pop band. You'll catch me like listen to a lot of Tina Turner. I don't uh-huh. know if that's necessarily guilty pleasure. No, if she's, you know, Tina Turner was the edgiest. If if you could call her pop, I mean, okay, when she did Brian Adams, what was that? Uh, go look at my iTunes. Notes. That song that she did with Brian Adams. I can hear the melody in my head. Da-da-da. It's only love. Yeah. Um, that's all. I mean, she was. She was incredible. You know, she was bald, right? Mm-hmm. Still is. Yeah. Well, obviously. She lost her hair because she kept dyeing it different colors. And um, I guess she did something once that ruined the follicles. She couldn't grow it back. But I'm looking through. Hang on. Let me see if I can. I shouldn't say bald, bald. She had very. Um, find somebody more pop oriented. So for me, it's obviously it's it's ABBA. It's the Bee Gees. Um, you know, I even liked the Archies, you know, when I was a kid. Um, Lobo. I mean, I could go on and on. I mean, I was one of the kids, you know, I, I you know, one of the first songs I learned to play was My Chevy Van, you know, and stuff like that. You know, that early 70s. Yeah, my so the probably the poppiest thing I have in my collection right now in iTunes is uh, Phil Collins. Like Susudio and stuff like that. Yeah, Susudio. Okay, so let's let's talk about Phil Collins. Easy Lover that he did. Oh with, my uh, gosh. Okay. There's a reason he I'm, had to hire D- Daryl Strumer to play all the guitar parts live. Okay. I'm playing that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, that song. Let's say it's not an easy guitar song. <laughs> Susudio is crazy. That's another like insane song. Um, some of their songs are like a lot more drum oriented especially in the early days but um there's definitely some well yeah but that's genesis and i i think the genesis stuff already goes you know into that category of like virtuoso kind of keyboard playing um especially that avocab record because it has lonely man on it and um even like duke i mean there's just some insane stuff on there and the guitar playing, like for the most part in the Genesis records, is not stunning until you go back to Steve Hackett, and then it's yep. the stuff is just outrageous. But um, yeah, I mean, 
I guess some of their later stuff, I, I Invisible Touch is probably my guilty guilty pleasure record. Um, oh yeah, that's a great. I hate great the song. song, but I like the rest of the album. Um, that's probably where I I leave it. Maybe like yes, nine hundred two one five. I like that record too, quite a bit. Yeah, that was kind of a uh, a certain departure for yes. Oh yeah, it was. Um, listen to Close <laughs> to the Edge and then listen to nine hundred two one five and tell me that was the same band. Yeah, no. They really well, weren't. Really it really was. Band. It really was. It was like three members <laughs> the of the same, band. Yeah, I was going to say you had John Anderson, you had uh, Chris Squire, and you had the keyboard player. What is it, what is it that um, uh, Robert Fripp says about King Crimson? He said it, when they when they reformed King Crimson with totally new players, it was like, well, King Crimson is not really a band. It's a way of doing things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, Robert Fripp, he was the central figure. Oh, yeah, band. no, King Crimson is Robert Fripp. I mean, it's the right. same thing, like, synonymous. That's with, like saying, yeah, who played guitar for Robin Trower? I mean, yeah. obviously <laughs> Robin Trower. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, no, he, he sang on that one. No, he, no. Um, yeah, so that was a, you know, a, a kind of a joke thing. But, you know, you take your um, your folks, your shredders. So when, you sh- when you're shredding, let's, let's talk about your, your, your technique. Uh, I am not a shredder, folks. I do not play real fast. I, I, what I play fast, like the Michael Sambello thing I was talking about, I sit down and I, I take it down to half speed. I learn it, learn it, learn it till I can't play it wrong. Then I speed it up, speed it up, speed it up till I get to hundred percent. And I do it. I mean, we talked about you know playing slow, getting fast. The only reason I play it slow to get fast is because I want to do it exactly I right. Just wants to annoy me. Yes. No, no. I, I've always done. This is always the way I've played. I know. I'm teasing you. My stuff like that. I mean, if I have to pull a solo out in, out of my rear end in the in the moment, I don't care if I have a shitty note. Honestly, I just don't care. I, I yep, played a bad note. But if I'm going to play a fast piece in front of a group of people and it's a it's a recognizable thing. If you play that Michael Sambolo thing, th- that stupid little um, uh, tap part is exact <clears throat> so you can't say oh well i can play it a little bit off it's okay if i have a couple of bad no no it's got to no. be it's got to be right on um otherwise it's not what the people remember that is a that is a solo a, an example of a shred solo you can sing i have i have seen people say things like when you're going fast it doesn't matter what notes you're playing bullshit yeah i'm, I'm gonna call bullshit on that right now um, if I hit a sour note at 180 beats per minute playing triplets, you're going to notice if yeah. I hit it at 240 beats per minute playing triplets, you're going to notice right. same sour note. Like it's, it's just a thing. Um, so from my perspective, right. if I'm going to sit yeah. down and I'm going to write a piece of music and I'm going to put a solo on it, I am, I guess I should go through my thought process and my feelings first. The fir- my first inclination is to structure the solo in such a way that I'm going to have a storytelling of some sort. So I'm either going to start fast or I'm going to start slow, and then I'm going to vary that. So it's it's never going to stay the same. And then I'm going to end either on a big note or a quiet note, or I'm going to end on the core, you know, the, the root chord. Like and and that's kind of the way I approach things. Is like I it's basically rolling the dice. Um, uh-huh. The second part is determined by the first. And then the yeah. final part is determined by really where the solo goes. So like at that point, you pretty much got a roadmap of where you're going. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to sit and say, okay, so I'm going to, let's say I'm going to start the solo off quickly. Right. Um, 
I got to determine whether I'm going to do something ascending or descending. I've got to determine yeah. what, what mode I'm going to put it in. And then I have to get mad at myself enough to force myself to actually play it in time. Because that's another right. thing. A lot of people can go fast, but it's not in time. You, yeah, you, I played with a lot of people that can't play fast in time. Well, that's where the slow thing comes in. And I, and I don't, again, I don't want to harp on that slow thing. I'm just mean that it, when you're doing this, what a lot of people don't, um, when, they, when they're playing fast, they think one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, when really you should be thinking of one, two, three, four, and then the other notes come in. Yeah, all, you, all I do is count the ones. That's, yep. that's what you should be doing is counting the ones, and then you yep. should know what a triplet feels like and a 16th exactly. note feels like and a 32nd note because you'll probably and be it, playing those at some point. That's um, right. But the, but the problem with a lot of, and you can hear it a lot in Van Halen's music, for example, yeah. is they will construct a solo that has no time. So the total, yeah. the solo is in free time over chords that are being played in, you know, 140 beats per minute, kind of, yeah. you know, straight four, four feel. Um, and that can be really, really problematic for, yeah. Um, a lot of reasons. Number one, replicating it live. Number two, uh, getting your accents and stuff correct, and yep. and to not clash with the other instrumentation. And right. for me, it's just a, it's just um, I actually, so I do get concerned, and I don't, I hate to say this, but I do get concerned about what other people are going to think too when they hear it. Like I'm out of time. It's like that says that I'm a bad player. Now, right. it's one thing if I play the whole solo in time and then there's this little section where I'm doing something else. Like, it has to be in context, and you have to understand where it's going. So if it's if I'm going to make a directional choice, I'm going to say this whole solo is going to be, quote, unquote, free time, then it doesn't sound like I can actually play in time. You know what I mean? Um, so, I don't know. I, I do get concerned about it. I don't do as much... So when I'm working with Black Death Doctors, which is my my singer songwriter project with uh, singer and all that stuff, um, I'm not consciously trying to perform solos in that way. Um, I'm trying to fit the song as much as I can. I think that's I think it's the hallmark of a shredder versus somebody that plays guitar. Um, is that you want to fit the song more than anything else? Now there are guys out there like Paul Gilbert who can fit the song and still play a billion notes a second. Um, and, you know, be, make a, comp- a completely uh, artist, a, a complete artistic statement with, you know, those kind of tech, tech uh, that, well, with that kind of technical virtuosity, uh, pick up any of the Mr. Big albums. You'll hear it. It's in there. Uh, the one with Colorado Bulldog is probably actually the song Colorado Bulldog is perfect. Bulldog, Bulldog, whatever. I. OK, so if. Obviously, a lot of my solos are constructed. I mm-hmm. learn them, and um, I have people ask me all the time, "How the hell do you remember like eighteen, twenty solos for an evening gig or more?" Sometimes I'm playing more than that. And the fact of the matter is, I actually know the bones of the solo. Some of them I can play it end to end. If there are a couple of measures, I can play it end to end, and I I pretty much. See, the same I feel, see, I feel like if I'm doing that in the studio, what happens is I end up I end up uh, with all these like um little mistakes that I wouldn't consider mistakes, but they're not studio perfect. Like right. I'll bump another string or something with my with yep. my left hand 
Um, and it annoys the hell out of me. I don't think yeah. the audience will even notice, but yeah. And, and live, that's a, that's a hard thing on you and you have to learn not to let it bother you. Cause it's in the moment it's gone and it's, and it's past. Well, and usually um, nobody else even notices it's you're no. more worried about it than they are. Even the band. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, you really nailed that. And I'm like, Ugh, no, no, I'm <laughs> so not loving what I just did. But people will come up to me and they'll go, oh, man, it sounded so good. I'm like, oh, no, I hated that. Um, but I don't tell them that. I'm no, like, you're oh, like, thanks. Thank I really so appreciate much. it. You know, yeah, I appreciate, I really appreciate it. it. And I appreciate it. Your do. musical taste is shit. No, <laughs> no, no. I'm, I'm sincere <laughs> about the appreciation that I have for the fact that their musical person or that their musical taste is shit. And I was good. But, um, <laughs> <clears throat> no, on a, on a, um, on a happier note, no, what I'll do is like, if, if I've got to um, make up a solo on the spot, which sometimes I do, like we'll play a song and, it, and there won't be a solo, but it's like, just play something. Um, or like boogie, oogie, oogie, there's a solo in there. Nobody remembers it, but I, I make my own solo. up. So what I do is pop music is, is great for this in that I can scat on a guitar and I can play whatever vocally I would sing. Yeah. And uh, that's a uh, a cool tool. I think when you're structuring solos, if you can if you can hum a tune, you know that goes along with the the uh, section where you're supposed to be soloing, you can usually zero in on that that um, melodic line and then wreck all sorts of havoc with it and turn it into a pretty good memorable guitar part. Um, I think that that in our inherent sense of melody is often disconnected from our guitar. Um, so it takes some practice to hone in on that, but yeah, I used to do that too. And the guys would laugh because I don't sing. So I'm just sitting there like singing away and I playing my guitar, you know, and it, even when I'm quietly practicing, I'm like kind of humming along. My wife drives me crazy with it. She's like, what are you doing? And I'm like playing, but no, you're, you're humming too. Like, shut up. Well, it's <laughs> like when you're feeding a baby, you, you ever feed a baby. I, I, I know this is weird and it's out of, out of the context, but it, it makes a point. You ever seen somebody feed a baby? They're always like, like their, their mouth yeah, is moving yeah. with the baby's mouth. Well, it's, it's, like, oh. there's that there's, um, guitar face, which is the same involuntary yeah. thing, which, which is what I, yeah, the whole time I'm humming in my head, I'm humming when I'm playing mm-hmm. and I have to, I, I, <clears throat> I think I've said this before. I have to hear the piece. I can't, I, I can't fathom how people can write and not hear it. I have to hear it. Perfect pitch. Yeah, I I can't do it. I can't. I have to hear in my head the piece that I'm got. I I do have incredible um, recollection of like somebody plays a tune. I can I can play it back, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know when I've hit a sour note, and I can find it. Um, but I'm just saying that that. Uh, it takes a, um, it, it, I think that if you're going to learn to, to shred, you're going to go faster than your mouth can move. Mm-hmm. Honestly. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, I think the hardest thing for me because I don't necessarily hear at that speed. Well, does that make you, sense? What you got to think about instead of what you're actually playing is the melodic contour of what you're playing. And so, like, a lot of times I'm thinking with these three notes, three note per string sequences that I'm learning right now, you're not thinking about the individual three notes so much as the chordal tonality that you apply. Um, and that's a lot of times, 
So it's the same thing as like if you're playing arpeggios at a thousand beats per minute, like Ingbe does. You're not thinking. Even when I when I see the shape, I'm like, that's an A minor in the you know the first inversion shape. Right. That's the way I think of it. I don't think oh it's you know A C E or actually the third inversion like E C A or E A C or whatever. I'm not thinking about it that way. You know what I mean? Like it's it's this is an A minor chord. Right. <clears throat> yeah, you're not thinking EAC third inversion. <clears throat> mm-hmm. It's more um, CAE it, second it, inversion. It forces you to be more broad strokes. Right. Um and I think we talked about this on this on the show before when you put together a piece of music, you can do it in very like defined detailed strokes or you can do it in super broad strokes like okay, the bridge is going to be like this, the chorus is going to be like this and the verse is going to be like this. And you don't even know what the chords are. You're just going to write, you're going to write a key at the front and then you're going to yep. have the Nashville notation. And that's the song. You don't chart out a lead line. You maybe yep. have some lyrics written down. You don't do anything more than that. That's as broad as it gets. Yep. Um, you know, you just have a structure and then these are your parts. But if you're going to share that with someone, yeah. you're, 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 you're going to typically then figure out what you've done. I mean, you're going to do that for yourself. Uh, when I was I, writing I, music I would argue for myself, that, that in some in some scenarios, not mainstream music, but like jazz music, they're not they're not writing out lead sheets for half their shit. They might write down the melody line. They might go one step further and say, "Okay, here's the main melody that the band needs to play," but the rest of it's just like here's some chord changes, here's some here's some tempo changes or some time changes, and or yep. both, you know. Right, right. And then this guy's gonna have a solo. This guy's gonna have a solo. This guy's gonna solo, and that's gonna be the end of it. Like that's the yep. way they do it. They chart out ahead, yep. and that's it. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. And then there are other times when you're going to write out sure, every sure. single thing. Like if you were going to present that to a conductor. Yeah. No, I'm saying it's just there's a different musical context for it. Um, exactly. And there are cases where you'll find even guys like uh, Frank Zappa didn't chart out everything known to man, even though he's seen as the guy. No. There are lots of times where he did what they called chance music, where it was like, okay, right. so we'll have these chords, and then you guys can do these stabs. I saw him uh, the other day, actually, it was a really short clip in an interview, and he was standing in front of two xylophone players and, and for an orchestral recording of, of some of his music, and he's like, no, the clusters need to be tighter. He's a, he's playing tone clusters, okay? It's just a uh, like an X on the staff, you know? And he's yeah. like, no, they got to be tighter, like... <laughs> It, was it the the was one of them the female he had for the longest time? No, no, no. It was uh, part of the this was this was I want to say like the it was a European orchestra that he was, oh, he was okay. performing some stuff with. Um, I think he did that two or three times where he had now, he didn't, orchestras. Yeah, he didn't necessarily do that, but he did have Vi come in right and write the stuff out. Well, Vi no, actually, so the way that Vi got started was he was actually like having a lot of the music out for him and mailing him, it to right. him, and mailing it to him as a fan. And then Vi yeah. hired him because he was like, oh my gosh, like this guy gets it uh, right. way more than I and ever that's what I mean. And so he was, he was like, okay, I'm going to bring this kid in and I'm going to have him write out, you know, like he was doing already. Um, yeah. That, yeah. Incredible stuff. You don't get to do that anymore, um, really. No, they don't. I mean, trans, even transcription now is just like not the same that it used to be, uh, especially now with some of these software packages. Or if you got yep. stems, you can run it through the software and you can get a pretty close approximation right. out of the gate. 
and then just yep. clean it up a little and bit. You can just right, you just go in there and neaten it up. It's uh I mean it may it makes quicker uh makes for quicker transcription, but I think it takes away the human element. No, but just the, like anything else. I just want to point out, um talking about Frank. Frank wrote down most of what he was doing. Uh right. like black page and stuff like that. Those pieces were incredibly complicated and all written out, and a lot of times they were given to the band by, by Frank in his own handwriting. So um I was just saying, like, he also adopted other ways of doing things, too, and, and so does everybody else. So there are just different contexts for it. Right. So going back to to your thing, so let's say you're going to write a song. You're writing a song, Black Death Doctor, um, which was primarily, was it, did, was it vocal? Oriented or yeah, was doing, it? Yeah, we're doing vo- vocal music still. But I mean, we do have some instrumental stuff now. But when you're writing, let's say you're writing one of your instrumentals, because I know you write, you compose. Yeah, yeah that that's stuff. probably a better, a better question. Right. So you're getting ready to go in, and you play a lot of the instruments. Yeah. Right? Yep. First, mm-hmm. um, you and I both play keys. We and I both play um, uh, guitar and bass and drums. So. Um, when it comes to uh, how you're going to put a song together, see, I, I think in a pop-oriented thing. So usually a song, for me, comes together with an idea of what I want to say, right? Yeah. I want to say something. I want to say I love you, or I want to you know, or I want to say uh, uh, this is a great day, or I, I'm in a shitty mood, or whatever. Then I start writing lyrics a lot of times around that. I, I may have the lyrics written, in a certain way. And then I have a riff that I was playing around with. And I go, Oh, you know what? That would work with that riff. And then I kind of work the two together. I start moving them together in that, in that way. Um, <clears throat> that was how I wrote, um, the two albums that I wrote. I wrote two albums worth of stuff. And, uh, so how do you, you know, instrumentally, how do you present that? Because it's easy for me. We could talk. I can say the sky is blue. I can say that I'm in a shit mood. I can say I love you. How do you do that? Even when just I'm approaching, and this 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 approach doesn't change for lyrical music either. Um, I tend to start with a melody line or a hook, and then I work back from that. Um, oftentimes, it will. It might even be a chord progression. That ends up being the you know the verse or whatever, and and. Um, that's how I construct a piece. I don't really, I'm not a guy that gets up and he's like, walks out on his back patio and goes, man, I'm feeling like this today. And the wind is blowing this way. And they go, that's going to be a song. You know, the wind blows this way. I'm not that guy. I I'm very much like the guy that says, okay, here's a piece of music I've written. What does it remind me of? And then I go back the other way and I say, okay, so we're going to title a song this because it makes me think of this. Um, I, there have been times where it's gone the other way. <clears throat> um, but generally speaking, it it can go either way. Um, and it tends to be more organic in, in the sense that I have the music first before I ever put pen to paper on lyrics. Um I will, the the title thing is one thing that that I might get first before I get lyrics, uh, and it's you know it's a chaotic mess. Creation is chaos, um, so a lot of times it's very much like here's my verse, here's my chorus. Now I got to come up with what is this song about? 
Do I put a bridge on it? Uh, is there going to be a guitar solo? And a lot of times that's something that's superfluous. And so I have to, I have to, if I'm going to do that, I have to come up with a way to fit it into the song. Um, which usually means adding a bridge or adding, um, additional choruses at the end with no, you know, with no, uh, lyrics. Um, it, it can get, it can get complicated and get ugly too. Um, but doing, so the way you structure a song isn't really that different between an instrumental and a, um, a vocal piece. You, you want to have music is about repetition. Um, as much as we like to think that music is about making a statement, it, it, you make a statement through repetition because otherwise the listener won't remember it. So if you could imagine taking a song where you have, it's, it, you know, you're using all 12 tones and you're playing, um, an ascending like chromatic thing. And then you play a descending chromatic thing. And that's the end of the song that the audience never gets a pattern for them to grasp on, to grab onto. And if they can't grab onto the pattern, they can't grasp the message. So if the, I, I, I do believe that music is inherently a form of communication. So you got to have a message that people can relate to and understand. So I, I'm very careful about, um, making sure that my melody speaks and that it's, I don't want to say lyrical because sometimes it's not lyrical, but that it's something that you can grasp onto and almost becomes a hook for the song in the sense that, okay, this is the melody. The next time I hear this, I know this is the main melody, you know, and I, and it's got to sit that way. So I don't, you do a lot of crazy orchestration anymore where I'd have like four instruments playing the same line. I don't think that's necessary. I try to be as minimalist as possible. A lot of times my recordings are a guitar, a bass and drums. And I try to do everything in one take. Um, it's not easy because I don't play drums. I do a lot of programming drums. I don't play uh, bass professionally. Um, so I'll do 10 takes of the bass part. But I can get through the guitar. <laughs> I can get through the guitar part. What I usually do is I build a scratch track to follow along with. So I make sure that the structure of the song's right while I'm doing it. And then I have the real guitar that goes on the top of that. And I kill the scratch track. And uh, yeah. you end up with one guitar track at the end. Um, so which, what instrument do you typically write on? Um, well, that that depends on the tune, but most of the time it's it's I start with guitar. Um, lately, I've been writing with bass more than guitar because the bass and the way I use bass a lot of times is it's playing a riff and the guitar is on top of that. Um, or I'll have like I'll play keys. That's that's another thing where especially if I'm building a chord progression and I want to try to use a circle of fifths or something to do, um, to do something. And I'll, I'll play keys because I think there's some, some advantages to doing that. You can see things differently on a keyboard than you can on a guitar. Definitely. Um, and it's easier to build complex chords on a keyboard than it is. On, yeah. Well, I think it's, that's it takes not, you it out of your comfort be, zone. It, you, yes. It used to be more difficult for me to form complex chords on the guitar, but now I can pretty much, I, it's just, I know where all the notes are. I mean, it's, it's dirt simple. Um, right. You can tell me a chord and I can pick it out like almost instantly. So, um, but I'm not that yeah, good. If really I said Eva seven sharp nine, you could do it yeah, right away. Yeah. Well, of course I could do that one. That's the Hendrix chord. <laughs> I kind of figured you'd, that's one most of us can see in our heads without even bothering. Yeah. Yeah. So I used to use that one um, a lot. Now I tell somebody to play a minor nine. And then watch them scratch their heads. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what? what? 
Um, so let's, um, yeah, what I, what I would normally wind up doing, believe it or not, I'd start writing with my pencil. So, um, typically what'll come to me, like I'll be, even now when I, when I do come up with ideas, I just haven't put anything, you know, together where I wanted anybody to hear it. Um, I'll, I'll write out a lyric line. Um, I might be in a shower or I might, you know, and I'll start singing to myself or start saying it over and over and over. And repetition is what it does. Yeah. I just say it over and over and over and over until I get out and get to where I can get to my phone and, and just hit the record button and say what I need to say. And one of the, one of the things I've heard done, Rush uses this technique. It's very similar to what you're describing. They'll take, they'll, they'll have the song, they'll work on the songs and the songs uh-huh. will basically be done. They'll have no lyrics. And the entire time that the album's been in production, Getty Lee's been writing down things on um, post-it notes. These little yeah. snippets of lyrics. And then yep. at the end, they'll take post-it notes and they'll kind of assemble songs from post-it notes. Yeah, kind of like a storyboard for a movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I've, always wanted, I've always wanted to do this. I've wanted to play with this idea. Um, I've done the found, the found uh, lyrics thing where you'll use books and then just take like sentences yeah. or roll dice and see what you can find. And actually that's worked out pretty well for me. Um, but not my favorite thing to do. If you think about it, a lot of what rush did were lyrics would come from, uh, Neil Peart, who didn't write any music. And he really didn't think about the rhythm or how, uh, you know, word structure syllables, um, work together. Um, that's called, you know, that's that's called thinking man lyrics. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of people like they'll, they'll write a lyric, but not think about the fact that that syllable doesn't really work or the way that the, you know, your cadence isn't quite structured well enough. Um, when it comes to pop music, you have to have a good cadence. It's got to work within the rhythm. It's got to work within the beat. You've got to be able to inflect without making it sound ridiculous and stupid. Although any one one listen to a Nicki Minaj tune will tell you that you can sound <laughs> stupid and still get away with it. But um, the uh, you know for the most part, and again, that's why like when somebody puts down pop music, I go, you know, you're right. There was shitty pop music. There is shitty pop music, but there's good pop music, and there was good pop music, and and it just it's just like any other genre. It had its it had its highs and it had its lows. Let's face it. If you try to tell me if if a heavy metal person tries to tell me that there was nothing but good heavy metal, they're full of shit because uh, there was a yeah, lot of crap. I agree. There's some. <laughs> I I have listened to some shit. Yeah. I think there's a band called Locust. Locust. Yep. Yep. I remember <laughs> that. I remember them. Were they the ones that uh, uh, the the guitar? Or, I mean, the lead singer, his crotch would set on fire. But anyway, um, <laughs> I'm not going there. Yeah. So when I write. I tend to do that and I hear it in my head, but sometimes it winds up once I put it musically, it doesn't work. You know, it doesn't work whether I'm playing it on keyboard or I'm playing it on guitar. It just doesn't, it doesn't translate. Um, you know, but I always found it interesting. Like you take a song like pumped up kicks, what a happy song about a very unhappy subject. Right. Um, you know, I, I always wonder how do you come up with that? You know, where you've, you're writing these lyrics. It's like somebody came, hey, man, I got a, I got a song about a, a school shooting. 
okay, and I've got this really happy um, tune. Let's put them together. <laughs> it's like they're yeah. peanut butter and peanut butter and chocolate. <laughs> All right. Well, we've hit our hour, folks. Yep. So uh, I have been David. I have been Jim. And we are the Practical Guitarists. Fat, fat dumb, and lazy. Two out of three, eight bad. Uh-huh.